Good morning. Is this on? Is this on? David, could you turn on wireless three? Like turn it up like a little bit, please. I tested this earlier and all your eardrums were stealing all the sound waves apparently. Test, 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 test. There we, I'm gonna get too excited. Uh, okay, we'll leave it there. Let's pray. Merciful Father, through holy baptism, you called us to be your own possession. Grant that our lives may evidence the working of your Holy Spirit in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control according to the image of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Couple of uh, reminder announcements here. Uh, for a fellowship this time that, that we're, we're enjoying now, uh, we need some volunteers um, for especially October 8th, where we don't have anybody to volunteer it. If you haven't done it before, it's super easy. The Brouches can walk you through. It's mostly just getting here a little bit early and setting, getting the coffee going and setting up some of the tables. So if you'd like to volunteer with that, please do. We're gonna pass it around so it can shame you as it passes you without <laughs> signing it. It's like, a, you know, it's effective. Uh, you, Pastor, there's a long list of verbal announcements today um, at, after church, so you have those. But like le next Sunday, LWML will be, ha will be, their presentation will be starting like at, right at the start of fellowship time. Um, so during this whole half hour, there'll be like this, the slides and there, the, uh, the, the video that they show of what's going on with the Lutheran Women's Missionary League uh, internationally right now. And then uh, whenever they wrap up, we'll, we'll continue our Bible study of Luke. So um, that's the goal. So there's not... If, if, you're, if you're thinking, oh, I don't want to skip LWML, don't. It's a good thing. But, but also, if you stick through, it's only going to be a few minutes into after 10, and then we'll continue with our Luke Bible study. Parents of our youth, there's a youth cookout and game night tonight at 5.30. Marge Stoffeld's funeral tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Be sure to sign up for the directory. And Oktoberfest needs lots of volunteers. Coming up next Saturday, or, or uh, six days away only, we need... Uh, we need some volunteers, uh, very minimal. Um, uh, we're looking for some just people, some time here in various places to help out and a few things that need to be uh, brought. Um, if you'll notice again, all the wood that's out front, uh, you can feel free to take any of that wood. It's like cherry and mulberry. You can take it, take it home if you want it. Uh, Theology on Tap, more books are available in the church office. So if you're one of those last week at Theology on Tap who didn't get a book, we have more that we've ordered that have come in. Don't ignore the small child running around behind me. 20-something uh, is going bowling this Wednesday at 6.30 at Lyle Lane. So uh, if you got one of your kids, basically post-high school graduate, uh, up into their 30s, just trying to get that group together. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of common worldviews there, and, and they're good kind of support community for one another. So you encourage your children to come to that um, if they're in that age range, or any of you in that age range. And last, Lou Malnati's Dining for Dollars. So one of the fundraisers for the school, an easy opportunity. You go to, you go to Lou Malnati's, the, the only the downtown location between 4 and 10, either for dine-in or carry-out or take-out or whatever. Um, you just tell them that you're affiliated with Bethany when you're checking out and like a certain percentage of the money goes to, goes to Bethany. So you get to eat Lou Malnati's and support the school. It's a win-win. So uh, keep that on your radar. That is again Wednesday. All right, we're going to jump into Luke here. As I'm getting set up, you'll notice today in church we had, we got to sing the, um, I think it was the hymn of the day. 
And then also the first communion hymn was Salvation Unto Us Has Come. It was a classic Lutheran hymn by Paul Sparatus going back to the Reformation era. And really, that's a good example of the goal of especially like Reformation era hymnody. The goal was to teach the faith through the, through the song. And so you, you, the families and children would commit these songs to memory. Half of them couldn't read anyway. So they, they commit the songs to memory and they go home singing the songs of salvation. So if you just, it's a long hymn, but just imagine these kids were learning it and singing it. Um, and it, so as a new Lutheran pastor, in fact, it was my second year of seminary. Um, Mandy and I got married this summer after my second year of seminary. And I wanted to just... I was going to have the most like idealistic wedding service of all time. And I was going to show all my Baptist relatives what Lutheran theology was all about. And so we picked Salvation Unto Us Has Come, all 10 stanzas. <laughs> then I didn't think a, c- a couple key factors were we're going to be standing in uncomfortable shoes this entire time, and especially the, the, the ladies. Um, and it was like an unair conditioned church in St. Louis at the end of June. So about two stanzas in, I thought, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> so today we got to sing it. Only we broke it into two parts. And we were in the air conditioning. Hopefully your shoes were somewhat comfortable. So Luke 21 today. So we've made it through just the first four verses. Uh, I plan to get through hopefully the rest of 21 today. Because the rest of the chapter of Luke 21 uh, carries a similar theme. So last week was the... Uh, widow's might. We talked a little bit about, about uh, giving and the, how we're to understand that rightly in the, in the church. Next is this, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple, and then also the second coming of Christ starts to overlap. And both of these, there's a reason for this. The, in fact, I've got it there on your, on your handout. The remainder of this chapter overlaps the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem with the end of the world and the return of Christ? And why does one necessarily bring to mind the other? And really, I think the, the most concise way to understand it is what I've got for you there in bold, that the end times, when we think the end times isn't just like the day that Jesus comes back, but we are living in the end times because the end times began with the death and resurrection of Jesus. So after the resurrection of Jesus, we find ourselves in this anticipating period that Jesus could come back at any time. And so having that in our mind is the end times rather than there's going to be an X amount of t- I mean, different, different uh, views of the end times. There's so many confusing teachings out there on this, but to, to maybe simplify it, we're living in the end times now. And when Christ comes back on the last day, it's not going to be a secret. It's, it's going to be very clear. There's going to be a loud, loud trumpet and all this kind of stuff. Um, and we're, we're, we'll get there at the end of uh, Luke 21. So the end times began with the death and resurrection of Jesus. At that point, God's grace was no longer delivered through animal sacrifices in the temple, but rather through the Lord's gifts to his church. Specifically, so catechesis, a teaching, as Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And lo, I am with you always, right? So this, the Lord is joining his presence. It's no longer, it's no longer put in the temple for the comfort of the Lord's people, but rather at the time of Jesus, it was his body. And that's why he's saying, tear the temple down, tear down this temple. And in three days, I will rebuild it. And after Jesus ascends into heaven, his presence is known wherever he, wherever he wants his presence to be, which is 
uh, wherever he puts his name in, the, in holy baptism and as the word is taught and in the Lord's Supper specifically in those, in those places. Uh, let's look at our, if you got a Bible in front of you, you can turn to, to Luke 21, chapter 5. If this is Holy Week in the context, ch- chapter 22, remember we already had, I believe it's in chapter 19 or 20, is the, the entrance into Jerusalem, which is our Palm Sunday. So we're in the context of Holy Week. We're getting, we're getting close to his betrayal and Monday Thursday and, and uh, then the start of Good Friday is all in Luke 22. So we're right here in the, in the heat of Holy Week. And while some were speaking of the temple, because remember they're there and they're seeing the widow come out and give their offering and the rich people give their offering at the temple. So they're in that context. And remember, Jesus has been ranting against the scribes and the Pharisees continuously for the last like three or four chapters. He's got his clear assault on this um, gospel-less, law-focused, self-righteous view of the Pharisees. And then he's going to go after the thing that they hold most dear is the temple itself. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, you know, it being adorned with noble stones and offerings is, we want to think back to, if you're familiar with your Israel history, remember that when the temple was first built by Solomon, who was like the richest guy ever, who had access to all the money in the world, and people, every time they come to visit Israel, you're so impressed by Israel's wealth, you give them more money? That was happening. It was a weird thing. Uh, so the queen, the queen, um, the queen who comes up, queen, was it? Yeah, the queen of Sheba, right? So she comes up, and she was so impressed by the wisdom of Solomon. She gives all these gifts. Um, that was all stripped down to nothing. So as we have the fall of Israel and the and the subsequent years after the death of Solomon, the split of the kingdoms with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the northern tribes and the southern tribes, and they get invaded by Babylon and on and on. They keep. They keep trying to pay off invading armies. And by do, to do that, they're like, well, I only have so much money in my pocket, but there's a lot of gold coating everything in the temple. So they start stripping down the temple and they give it off to pay off these invading armies so that they can like partner with them to invade the northern tribes or they'll defend them against other invading armies. It's like, did you forget that it's God himself is the one who's going to protect you from all these invaders? So, Unfortunately, you do see this downfall of the temple. It's stripped down to nothing and then ultimately destroyed. And then, then at the very end of the Old Testament, remember Israel is set free from captivity. They return and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they try to rebuild the temple. And when the, when the temple is rebuilt, everyone gets there, they gather together to celebrate, but you, you hear rejoicing coupled with a loud wailing like crying. So it's like, what? How can, why would there be such strong emotions? So what they're looking at, it's this, the temple is this limping, just terrible snapshot of what it once was. So those who remember the temple when it, when it, when it's at its greatest, they're seeing this temple that's been rebuilt. And it's just like, it's like if you have this beautiful birthday cake from Dietas. <laughs> but if you ever had one of those, it costs like a thousand dollars. And it's nice, I mean, it's nice. And you bring it to your kids, happy birthday. And then you trip and the, and the cake falls and cake is all over the floor. And, and you hope that maybe Mandy didn't see you. So you, you scoop it all together and kind of form it into mounds. And then you present that to your child. The, this, 
sad picture of what was once a beautiful cake is now crumbs in this pile of like nastiness. That's the view of the temple. That was, as we're coming into the time of Jesus, that had been, this temple was just a sad picture of what it once was. Then Herod comes to power. And remember Herod, this, this whole big thing with Herod at the time of Jesus, Herod the Great, he's, he's Jewish by descent. He's trying to pay, but he's appointed by Rome. He's getting paid off by Rome. And he wants to essentially win over the Jewish people. So he starts taxing the people and then using that money to re- replenish the, the temple. So the temple was getting better and better and better to the point where in, in today's text, people were commenting on how beautiful it is. It's got these noble stones and offerings. It's still not even a glimpse of what it once was under Solomon because the money just wasn't there. But it still was impressive with these massive stones. And there's some pictures, like if you go to the, the Holy Land, you can see some uh, what's, what's said to be the remnants of the temple in certain places, like especially the only... The only remnants seem to be like in the outer wall. I think it's like the Wailing Wall. There's parts of it that are still there, and there's these massive rubble, these huge stones that you, you, you envision to be, they were once the, the base of this massive temple. He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Because now the presence of God is no longer in the temple, but it's in Jesus, and it will be dwelling in the Lord's church in word and sacrament. So the day will come when the temple will be destroyed, and that day does come in, what's the year? 69, 70, 70 AD approximately. And on uh, your handout, um, on the back, there's a pretty graphic. There's, there's a lot of famous artwork that's kind of, that is trying to like demonstrate that picture when Rome comes and they, what's it called, siege the city. And their people are starving and like cannibalizing people and uh, really just terrible stuff when you read Josephus on the history of what's happening to Israel. And uh, all this had been foretold by Jesus specifically in today's text, but also by the prophets of the Old Testament. They said to Jesus, verse 7, Teacher, when will these things, that is the destruction of the temple, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So even at the time of Jesus, there were those who were coming claiming to be the Messiah, so, or after the time of Jesus. But even at the time of Jesus, like remember, the, the Jewish people, after the Old Testament, they were waiting for a Messiah. And when Jesus shows up, he just wasn't what they were expecting. They're wanting this guy, this military general of power and strength. That's why when Jesus goes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they thought, here we go. It's going to be great. And so Jesus, though, comes in weakness and humility, not the powerful Messiah that they had been expecting. And so they're disappointed uh, in, in Jesus. Yet they were still waiting on a Messiah. Guys had come up. Um, so even if some speculate, because remember Barabbas? who they release on Good Friday. Uh, Bar, so remember Simon Bar-Jonah. You know what Bar means? Son of? So uh, Bar-Abba, son of Abba, Abba Father. So some speculate, and it's pure speculation because the scriptures don't say, but that perhaps this, remember how Barabbas was, he had been arrested for like inciting rebellion? So perhaps he had been claiming or masquerading in some way to be this 
this Messiah, this son of Abba, who's kind of come back and it's not working out. Obviously, he gets in prison. And so when Jesus gets in prison as another Bar Abba, a son of God, it's like not surprising. So people are kind of familiar with these people claiming to be Messiahs. And then shortly after, Jesus recounts, or uh, jo- Josephus, the historian, recounts uh, pl- plenty of people who are coming after Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. And even, I was in an Acts when, um, I forget, the, I forget the, um, the Pharisee's name, who's giving counsel that, you know what, don't, don't persecute these Christians. Because ultimately, do you remember what's happened before when guys show up and they claim to be the Messiah, then we kill the Messiah, the alleged Messiah, and then what happens to the rebellion? It dissipates. When, the, when this false leader was killed, the whole, the whole movement dies. Uh, and they, they were talking about that already in Acts. So they were saying, look, Jesus is dead. You don't need to go after him. The whole movement's just going to die on its own, unless it's actually true, which we know to be the case, right? So the movement, of course, doesn't stop. But you, we definitely see these glimpses of many coming in the Lord's name saying, I am he, the time is at hand. Do not go after them. The Greek, don't follow in their way. So Jesus, I am the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Don't follow after their way. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, and the end will not be at once. So every war, every war that's happened since, really, since the return of Christ has been this glimpse of a reminder that the end will come eventually. But wars have been happening ever since the return of Christ. The destruction of Jerusalem would, in in this way, also foreshadow the end of the world with the wars and such taking place before Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, nation will rise against nation. Maybe he's still building toward the destruction of Jerusalem's temple. But remember, he's got in mind this end of the world too. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Again, the historian Josephus recounts these things happening uh, surrounding this in 70 AD, as the fall of, Israel, fall of Jerusalem and the temple is happening, we have all these earthquakes and plagues and just weird stuff that's happening. But before all this, they will, lay, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, talking to his disciples, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. My namesake comes up a lot, a lot of times in the, in the New Testament. Remember the, the significance of the Lord's name being tied to holy baptism. The Lord puts his name on us. He puts his presence with us. And so for someone to be, for someone to be arrested for the sake of the Lord's name is, is to be arrested for being a, a Christian. That's what that means. So that's the persecution that comes for bearing the Lord's name and holy baptism and having that Christian life. This, when you are arrested and brought before kings, this will be your opportunity to, the word for bear witness in the Greek, martyr. That's the word for give testimony. We are familiar, we associate martyrdom with, with the death. And that's, and that's obviously often the case. But really the word martyr in the Greek means to give testimony, to bear witness. And you do, for those who are killed for the faith, in their being killed, they are bearing witness of their, of their faith and their certainty of the resurrection to come. Every, every, uh, so this is an example of the persecu- uh, how persecution is an opportunity for all of us, even in our context. Again, this is written to the disciples, but we have some 
we can, we can learn from this example that the opportunities that we have where we, are, we might be persecuted, especially in the days to come, um, it, it shouldn't surprise us because the Lord says it's going to happen. But when it does come, this is an opportunity for us to, to bear witness to the faith. It's funny, when, when, the, when persecution inevitably comes, our sinful flesh sees it as this like seeming example of the, the devil creeps in and tries to say, if Jesus existed, if God was really there, he wouldn't let this be happening, especially to you, because you're a believer. But it's what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is calling it now before he's even dead. That it's going to happen. And the first wave of Christians who had just, they just seen Jesus die and rise, and they're the ones who are going to be persecuted. When they're facing persecution, they know for sure that Jesus has died. He's risen. And this persecution is happening. Oh, it must be God's allowing it as a, for me to be able to give witness, to bear witness to my, to my faith in Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, also, the witness of the early church uh, disciples is a huge argument that we have for the reliability of the Bible. It's not, I don't have uh, the scripture, Luke 21 doesn't have that directly in mind here necessarily. But remember, just because someone died for the faith, it doesn't make the faith true, right? Otherwise, the Quran would be true because the Muslims crashed in the Twin Towers. So dying for a cause is not itself evidence for the truth of that cause. What's unique about the early church martyrs in the first century is that they weren't dying just because of the faith in the resurrection. They were dying because they actually saw with their own eyes Jesus rise from the dead. So what they're dying for, they're not dying because someone told them, that's how you and I would be martyred, that we have this... We have this faith in the resurrection and our faith wanes at times. We have our doubts. We pray for strength as Jesus counsels us to do in, in today's text, actually. But for them, it's not, it's not something that they heard from another. They are the eyewitnesses to the resurrection themselves. So when, when a knife gets put to their throat and, they say, and it's told of them, uh, renounce this, admit that it was a lie. Otherwise, I'm going to kill you. Well, if they're, if they're making this whole thing up, of course, they're going to say it's a lie. They have nothing to gain by, by lying in that moment. So the actual disciples who are there dying for the faith in the first century, they're saying, look, I know it's, it's hard to believe. I saw Jesus rise from the dead. You can kill me if you want. That's fine. It's going to get me closer to Jesus. And so they're, they're dancing into persecution with more certainty than, than we would be because we're, we're operating on what we've heard and they're, and they're seeing it. But what's helpful is th these are the guys who are writing the scriptures. So one of, this, one of the strong evidences that we have, one of the def apologetic defenses that we have for the reliability of the New Testament is not just that people died for the faith, because that argument can be true for every religion that there's ever been. What's helpful here is that we have people who are dying for what they saw, and there's all this extra biblical evidence that, it, that these martyrdoms were occurring, including from Josephus, and Tacitus and many of uh, Pliny the Elder, Pliny the, and so forth, all these first century historians were talking about these crazy Christians who are willing to die because they said they saw Jesus rise from the dead. Why would they do that? They had nothing to gain. There's no mass psychosis that was happening or hypnosis. 
So uh, they're given this opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer when you get arrested and, and are dragged before kings and governors. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So what do you make of that? Settle in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Why do you think he would say that? What do you think? Yeah, so that we have these other examples of places in the, among the disciples, like Peter and Paul. Peter's famous sermon of Pentecost where he just speaks, um, and God is working through them. God's, God's, that's the way prophets have always worked. God puts his word on the lips of his, of, of his prophets. I think there's a practical reason for this, too. If you, imagine if you're one of these disciples and you think, all right, Jesus is, I, I believe Jesus to be true. I know I'm going to get arrested for my faith, apparently. When I do, I wonder what I should say. What's going to consume their thought between now and they get, when they finally get arrested? It's going to constantly be worrying, anxious about it. And it consumes their thoughts and robs them of joy. So he says, no, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. I'm going to tell you what you can say beforehand. It's going to be, I'm going to put it on your, put it on, I will give you a mouth of wisdom. Now, to be sure, it's not like, as the enthusiast would say, that maybe God's just going to zap them. I mean, maybe there, there's that to it. But ultimately, they're going to know what to say when they're taken before princes and rulers because they've been walking with Jesus for three years. It's the same thing with Peter. I mean, we have the, we, in Acts, we have the sermons and we have the, the words that they were given to say, specifically with Peter and Paul, before kings and princes. And they're standing there and they're simply recounting what Jesus did and applying it to them. Giving the, confessing the law and the gospel. So in that way, in that sense, we can see, again, Jesus is talking specifically to the first century disciples here, but there is some carryover to us by way of example. It's not given to us in the sense that, that God's promising you that he's going to magically put words in your mouth at the, at the given time. I'm only saying that because this is given to the disciples but we do have this common sense that we know that we know that we'll, there will be opportunity in our lives to bear witness for the faith. We put in situations where we're given to confess the gospel, and in those situations, the Lord is giving you what you should say, even now. I mean, a very simple level. When, when people are like, oh, "I don't know what to say," well, you know the creed, you know the basics about what you believe, and when you start, when your little holes in your armor. Are, are exposed, well, then now you know something to study up on. So the Lord, the Lord is the one who is strengthening us in the faith in that way. Any faith that we have is a gift to him. So in that way, he is giving us a mouth and a wisdom to confess our faith. But this does seem to be a little bit more, it seems to be a bit more like in the, in the prophetic sense of God's like working directly through their mouths. It says your adversaries will be, none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. It doesn't mean that they're going to win. It's a helpful distinction because it's also true for us. You might find yourselves in a debate with a non-believer and the, the argument, 
the, the argument for the reliability of the Bible and the Christian, the Christian case to be made is it's, it stands on its own. A person can't necessarily withstand it or they can argue about it or whatever, but there's, you're not going to poke a hole in the reliability of the New Testament. But they can still kill you. And that's Stephen. So Stephen's there. He makes a case. He simply lays out the reliability of, or the, the, the historicity of Israel and Jesus' fulfillment of the Messiah, and then they get mad and they kill him. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they'll put to death. And we see that happening, and Jesus has been talking about that before, that this betrayal that's happening all, and it's always done for the best, right? So people would say, well, I'm doing you a favor. That's all the way, it's kind of the way we see it. We hear of it happening in communism, where you teach the children that if your parents are, are teaching you about Jesus at home, then you need to tell me because ultimately it's bad for the country. So then they can go arrest your parents. So you see this, this, this like dissolving of the family unit. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Again, there's their name. The name of Jesus is placed on us in holy baptism. So hold on. Some of you they'll put to death. Death? You'll, you'll be hated by all, but not a hair of your head will perish? By your endurance you will gain your lives? How can those things both be true at the same time? Follow that? They will put you to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. Does that mean that when they kill me, my hair will, will be intact? <laughs> What's he saying here? How, is it, how are these two things simultaneously true? The death, yet still not perish. Right. Temporal death, but eternal life. And, this, and Jesus has talked about this so, so many times where he talks about laying down, laying down your life. He who seeks to, to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses, my, loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, that's this here. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Life is more about heartbeats and breathing, but this eternality of eternal life. Uh, and that's this promise given to the disciples as they walk into persecution that while they might be killed for the faith, they, they have the eternal life to look forward to. And we know like, when you read the first century accounts of the martyrs, it's, just, it's really um, quite moving to see their confession that they were able to give in those, in those moments. Now, that's, this, that's Jesus talking about the persecution that they're going to be enduring and the martyr, the, the opportunity for bearing witness they're going to have. And then Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem in verse 20. This all boils down to this message. When people start to invade, get out of there. And they just says that in like 15 verses here. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter. Like, don't go back in there. For these are the days of vengeance, the judgment on, on those who have rejected the Messiah, to fulfill all that is written. So, like, the three, there's three, like, direct prophecies of this. You have Jeremiah 6, Micah 3, and Zechariah 14, where it talks about the destruction, the word Jerusalem is just going to get wiped out. And this is it. Alas, for those who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. So I mean, just imagine whether you're in the, in, the, in the midst of being besieged 
or even if you're having to flee into the mountains, have you ever tried to just go to Walmart with a nursing infant? So it's not going to be great trying to flee into the mountains with nothing or with, you know, in, in pregnancy, having to stop every five minutes to go to the bathroom. <laughs> but there's this, there's this real, you see this, if you're living in Jerusalem at this time, there's this clear, like, haunting, looming destruction of Jerusalem that's coming, and it, and it did. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this Jerusalem being trampled underfoot kind of recalls, remember back in Luke the 2, when Simeon picks up Jesus in the temple, and he, and he says to Mary that he, he will be the cause of the rise and fall of many. So it is here, those who have rejected the Messiah um, falling. The edge of the sword. Uh, Josephus actually records how there were over a million who were killed and more who were taken captive in this when Rome comes to wipe out Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then the, the Gentiles remain until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled and that we get the sense that that's still continuing today. There's, so you have every different religion under the sun is re represented in Jerusalem now. Um, large parts of Jerusalem are, are still by non-Jewish descent, Gentiles, they're occupying Jerusalem. Now that's all destruction of Jerusalem and specifically toward the, con the immediate context in relation to the destruction of the temple. And the main message for us to walk away from is, I mean, obviously we know Jesus is God and he can prof prophesy the future, but, but it's this, we don't need the temple anymore because the presence of God is in Jesus himself. And then also wherever he wants to be present for us still today. And so the temple is destroyed. That's the old way. And that, but for his immediate hearers, I mean, he's kind of counseling them. Like if you're around, when, when, when Rome comes, get out of there. It's not going to be pleasant. He knows it's coming. And he's weeped before. Remember like two chapters ago when he's walking into Jerusalem? He's, he, he's, he cries. He's, oh, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Uh, knowing that this is coming. Weeping for their unbelief. All right, any, uh, any comments or questions on J Jerusalem? And then we're about to transition in verse 25 to the, the end. Don. What is the time of the Gentiles? So with the commentaries, the, the most helpful note I found in the commentaries on that was talking about the, the, it's the Gentiles who overrun the Jews. I mean, the Gentiles are bad. Now, Jesus dies for the Gentiles, right? But if you're, a Gentile, if you're a Gentile who believes in the Messiah, you become part of Israel, you see? So, the, so Israel is a light to the Gentile, a light to the nations. That's not to say that all these unbelievers are saved. No, it's saying that Jesus dies for all of them too. And as soon as a non-believer starts believing in Jesus, they cease to be a non-believer. So as a Gentile in this context, this this the unbelieving pagan world is going to come into what you found to be most dear Pharisees. Remember the, the audience here. He's been going after the Pharisees. Uh, the, the, the Gentiles aren't allowed to come into the temple. They're not allowed to go past a certain point. They're going to come in and desecrate the whole place and destroy it. So it's this shattering of all that they had hoped for until the time of the Gentiles has has ended and it's not it's still happening there.
So then with the return, the coming of the Son of Man. Now, there's, there's lots of different teachings on the end times. Um, we get a lot of parables of Jesus about the end times, specifically in Matthew. And um, we're, in Ma- we're in year A, I believe, in the lectionary. So this coming up in the next, like, basically after All Saints Day. So think after Halloween, Reformation Sunday, All Saints Day, November 1st. All of November is all the scary end times uh, end of the return of Christ, the wise and foolish virgins, the sheep and the goats. That's all Matthew giving us a picture of the final judgment in the end times. Uh, that's, those, those aren't complete pictures. First um, Thessalonians uh, talks about this, the end times a little bit, what's going to happen to those who are alive when Christ returns. Um, and here's a little snapshot. And the, and the, be, the, best, snaps, the best thing to walk away from with, with this is, is coming up in the last verse. But he's describing the day. And we know he's shifting to the, the return of Christ because of verse 27. They see the Son of Man coming. And that's, that's this clear messianic language. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. This is not a secret return of Christ. Some teachings that regarding the end times uh, talk about a, like this secret rapture where Jesus is going to sneak back and, and take people out. It's not, a, it's not a secret here. He's coming. I mean, it's, it'll be a surprise in the sense that no one knew it was coming at, at that specific time. But um, it's, not, it's not done in the cover of darkness. You see God's ordered creation start to shake unloose with the skies falling, the sea and the waves roaring, the powers of the heavens be shaken. And then we see the Son of Man coming in cloud with power and great glory. And this is a, this is a clear, frightening picture. And it will be very frightening if we are alive at his return and see the return of Christ all of these things happening. And that's this kind of like chaotic picture that was happening, that was prophesied about Jerusalem. It gives cause for Jesus to make this important point. That's why he shifts to the end times as well. So it's all this chaotic and, and end of Jerusalem. Well, here's the end of the, here's the, end of the world too. Um, scary, frightening, based on what we see. And yet he says in verse 29, now, when these things begin to take place, when you see all this scary stuff happening and Jesus coming, like when, whenever, any of you guys, if you ever had a dog who knows, if you, who's been potty trained and knows not to poop on the carpet right in front of you, when said dog does that and you walk up to the dog, all you have to say is, what did you do? What did the ears do? What does the tail do? So this is, so the posture is one of, I'm about to get scolded here, right? So when Jesus comes back, and, if, and if, you're, if you're seeing the return of Jesus as one who comes only with a sword to punish you, then the posture would be one of fear and uh, cowering. So it's, it's helpful here when Jesus says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Don't cower down. 
because he's not coming, he's not coming to hurt you. Straighten up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now, this is a similar picture that we get in Psalm 46, which, which uh, Jesus, which Luther uh, used to, as the foundation for a mighty fortress is our God. But the picture in Psalm 46 is the earth shaking, like splitting open and stuff falling in, mountains falling into the sea. It's chaos, it's shaking all over the world. And then the famous line in verse 46 that's often heard out of context is, be still and know that I am God. It's not telling you to be still. Because guess what? Have you ever gone to like one of those, um, like at a carnival or something, like the little fun house, which is the opposite of fun? You walk in and there's like, there's like these things that are moving back and forth. You can, you can try to be still, but you can't because it is moving. The only way to ensure that you're not going to be shaken is if you're standing on something that's not shaking. That's Psalm 46. The world will be shaken. That is those who are not standing on the shore in certain rock. But for those of us who stand on Christ, we are still. So Psalm 46 is given to you not as a command, because you can't make yourself stand still when you're, when you're standing on the shaky, whatever, funhouse floor. But he's giving it as the certainty that you're, you are still. He's the Lord. You're not standing on that shaking stuff. It's okay. And that's the same here on the last day. When he comes, chaos is hitting everywhere else and this fear of what is going on. And we're like, this is it. It's being in the, uh, I think Wolf Miller's got some cool pictures and he, he's masterful at drawing these pictures, but he's got this um, uh, in times picture is, is of, a, of a, a princess who's been captured in a, um, in a, like a dungeon, held hostage. And she's, she's down there in the dungeon and she hears, she hears outside the castle, you hear like this explosions and you hear the screaming and you hear the armies and you hear the rumbling. If you ever see like Lord of the Rings, the, the two towers when they're hiding down in the mountain and you hear the, ar the orc armies outside marching and you hear the ground is rumbling and all this and they're all, they're scared to death because they know they're about to all be just slaughtered in there inside this mountain. If, you're, if you are in the castle and the walls are rumbling and, and, and shaking and breaking and falling down and, and you hear the armies outside and you're in that castle, you are scared to death unless you're the one that they are coming to save, right? So then it changes the way you hear all of that noise, doesn't it? It's no longer the crumbling of the walls is not scaring you. It's about to bust you out. Those armies aren't coming to hurt you, but to help you. And that's the, that's the Christian, this is the redemption, this being delivered out of sin and death that's coming for us on the last day when Jesus does return. Uh, and that's just the one, the one snapshot of the return of the Son of Man here. And then he continues, I'll, I'll, I'll go a little bit further and we'll take some questions. Um, he told them a parable, right, on, right in the context of there, look at this fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. Like there are, there are some things that are certain. There's a lot of things maybe we don't know. We don't know what's gonna happen in the stock market. We don't know like various things, but we, we do know that when you walk outside and the trees start budding, we know that spring is coming. There are certain things that are, are certain and sure. So too, so also when you see these things taking place, these things happening in the destruction of the world, you know 
that the kingdom of God is near. You know it with a certainty. As sure as the leaves in the spring, you know that Jesus will return. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now this is problematic for us if we, if we consider generations as, like we think about generation as, so everybody who's like in their low 40s is in my generation, and then there's like my parents' generation, and my kids' generation, and you have the different generation. We think of it horizontally. The scriptures also have a way of talking about generations vertically. And it's this clear split between these, the, gener, the genera, the, line, the genealogical line, not by blood, but by belief. That there are the believers and the unbelievers. That's why Jesus often talks about generations in this way. He's talking about the generation of the sons of God and the sons of disobedience, the generations of the unbelievers. And that's here. This generation, the generation of unbelievers, will not pass away until all has taken place. So we know that when Jesus returns, it's still going to be this, we experience it in this world, that the world's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse, and unbelief will still be rampant uh, until Jesus comes back. But then heaven and earth will pass away. Remember the picture in Revelation? The earth is destroyed. The heavens are destroyed. It's kind of a weird thing. Destroyed by fire. And the picture is that the, the believers are resurrected, or all are resurrected, but the believers are somehow taken up. And who knows how this is going to work out. It's, it's very, like, non... It's, hard for, it's impossible for us to picture it, but we actually see the destruction of the earth. And then he rebuilds it. Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth. So all the things about this earth are tainted by sin. The earth is destroyed and then rebuilt apart from sin. And then the heavenly Jerusalem actually comes back down onto the new earth. So you and I think about heaven as like this distant place. Well, that's maybe now. That's the now heaven, this, this other this other dimension, but on the, after the return of Christ, heaven actually comes down onto the new earth, the, te- the, the heavenly temple. That's complex. It's not, it's not necessarily here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. One of the most comforting texts in here, because remember that the words of Jesus don't pass away because his words aren't like our words. His words are, remember what happens when God's, God's word speaks? Well, let's back up even further. Look at the very beginning of creation. Well, I'll give you another, keep backing up on my logic here. Is God triune? Has he always been triune? Where was the triune God at creation? So remember the God, the Father, who's, who's there? The Spirit's hovering over the waters. And then where's Jesus? He speaks, let there be light. All, that's why we confess in the creed, all things were made through him. Like through these words. God speaks, and that is the, that is the second person of the Trinity. Well, in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word of God is not just the words that we speak. They're not words about God, but they are, in, in some weird way, they are God himself. So when Jesus talks about his words not passing away, it's because he's not going anywhere. So when God speaks, his words do things. They create light, they forgive sins, they wake the dead, right? They wake up Lazarus just as they'll wake up uh, you and me. 
We often live like his words, uh, like we, we typically live like the reverse, don't we? That heaven and earth will never pass away. Um, so we, we, we focus more on the, on the, uh, the temporal things and uh, treat them as though they're eternal. But the things that, that will not pass away, the eternal, the word of God and his promises toward us, often we don't, we don't hold them as valuable. And that's just evidence of our sin that we, we tend, and that's why we need to hear the law that turns us away from our, our focus on the temporal and disregard of the eternal and that, so that the Lord would always use his word to, to bring us back. Now on your, on your hand out there, I got two, call, two like little boxes, the unsure and the uncertain, and then the sure and certain. As we, think about the, as we think about the end times, the last days, there are things that are seen, like with the wars and the tumults and the famines and plagues and all this, and that just adds to these, this unsure uncertainty and fear. The nations rising as nations, the famines, the persecutions, and we don't even know like when that stuff starts to happen. Is that, hap- is that like, is this the end? Is the end happening now? Is it going to be next week? Because guess what? Wars and famines and plagues have been happening ever since Jesus, really ever since the fall. So we, it's like there's all this uncertainty if we're focusing on just what we see. And now the sure and certain things, just, just as certain as we're able to see the fig leaves turning green and knowing that summer is near, with that kind of like predictable certainty, we rely on that which is heard over against what we see. So as Jesus says, my word won't pass away, that when all these things happen, when Jesus returns, I know with certainty that he's not coming to hurt me, but to save me, to redeem me. Behold, your redemption, your redemption draws near. So he grounds us on this unshakable certainty of his word and his promises that we can cling to when everything else seems to be spinning out of control and chaos. And if we, if we, look, if we look at our lives, if we look at the world around us and try to draw conclusions about certain things, you're gonna be disappointed, you're gonna find despair. We're gonna be confused on, does God really exist? Does God really love me? How is he allowing this stuff to happen, right? That's looking at my eyes. Jesus tells us our eyes are going to give us evidence of lots of bad stuff. So he gives us to hear. And then last, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So he's got this clear distinction. He lumps together dissipation, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And I think the, the primary focus is this, this focus on this life, the cares of this life, as though it's the only thing. With such a numbness, that's where the drunkenness and dissipation comes in. A, a numbness and an ignorance of the real eternal things that matter most. And that's our sinful, unfortunately, that's our sinful flesh. Often we get wrapped up in the cares of this life and we, we forget that, hey, this Jesus is going to come back, that I'm actually living in the, in the not yet. I'm waiting for Jesus to come and, and redeem me, to pull me out of this fallen world, to raise me up into everlasting life. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, that all will face the final judgment, but stay awake at all times, that is, have a living faith. So this is this, the stay awake is in contrast to the dissipation, drunkenness, numbness of the cares of this life. That's the, that's the just, juxtaposition there. Stay awake at all times, being prayer, with, a, with an expect, 
uh, prayer of expectation, living in prayer, living in these two realms with this living in the now, knowing that God has created this world, and yet knowing that this world has fallen into sin, and that it's not eternal, and that Jesus is working through me to serve my neighbor in this world that has fallen, but I know that it's going to pass. So don't cling to it like a raccoon to something shiny, <laughs> but know that it will pass and that the Lord will have these eternal things. And then we have our eyes on those. That's the staying awake, being mindful of that. Uh, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. If we stand on our own on the last day, we stand in nothing but fear and in sin. So the whole point of praying for something like, I don't have to ask you for something if I already have it. So the whole point in having to pray for strength to escape these things is just evidence that in our own, if left up to ourselves, we don't have strength to escape these things, but by the grace of God, who gives us the gift of faith. So through this faith that comes to us as a gift, we are clothed in Jesus. So on the last day, we stand, as he says in verse 36, with our heads held high, we stand before the Son of Man, not on our own merits or our own strength, but as those who are clothed in the holiness of Jesus. That there's nothing about me that, that gives me any confidence on this day, except for everything, all of my sin has been stripped from me and given to Jesus, and it died there, and he has given all of his holiness and righteousness to me. And that's my strength, not my own, but given to me by the Lord, and in which I stand on the last day. And then quick uh, bookend there. On every, and every day he was teaching in the temple where they didn't go and arrest him. But at night he'd go out and lodge on the mount called Olivet, which happens to be where Judas, so Judas knows that's, that's where Jesus is going to be tomorrow. Uh, we'll, we'll study it next week. When, when, when they come to arrest Jesus on Monday, Thursday, he's in the Mount of Olives praying. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where Jesus goes. That's why they come out to get him that night with the torches to arrest him. And early in the morning, all the people would come and hear him in the temple. I finished a chapter of Luke. Right on. So, uh, the cost of that was not taking questions, and I apologize. So if you have questions on... It's, it, these questions about the end times can go on, go on forever and ever. So we'll, next week, if you've got questions on the end times... Bring them next week, and then um, we'll, we'll jump into Monday Thursday on, on Luke 22. Again, Oktoberfest on Saturday, and register for your picture directory. The Lord be with you.